Welcome to Poetry Lectures, featuring talks by poets, scholars, and educators, presented by PoetryFoundation.org. In this program, we hear a discussion concerning the life and work of Elizabeth Bishop. Elizabeth Bishop is considered by many critics to be one of the most important American poets of the 20th century. She was born in 1911, attended Vassar College, and later lived in Key West and Brazil before returning to Massachusetts. Her poetry is marked by precise descriptions of the physical world and an air of poetic serenity, but her underlying themes include the struggle to find a sense of belonging and the human experiences of grief and longing. In 1970, she took a teaching position at Harvard. She died in 1979. In commemoration of the centennial of her birth, the Woodbury Poetry Room at Harvard hosted a conversation featuring Bishop's friends and students. The discussion touched on Bishop's undergraduate escapades, her relationship with her mentor Marion Moore, her friendship with Robert Lowell, as well as her years at Harvard, her generosity, and her personal struggles. Lloyd Schwartz hosted the conversation, which included Frank Bedart, Megan Marshall, Gail Mazur, and Rosanna Warren. Lloyd Schwartz is the author of five books of poetry and a collection of essays about Elizabeth Bishop, and has edited Bishop's poems, prose, and letters. He teaches at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Frank Bedart has published eight books of poetry. He teaches at Wellesley College. Megan Marshall is a writer and scholar. Her book, The Peabody Sisters, was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in Biography. She teaches at Emerson College. Gail Mazur was a student of Robert Lowell and has published four books of poetry. Rosanna Warren is a professor at the University of Chicago's Committee on Social Thought. Her most recent book of poems is Ghost in a Red Hat. Warren's mother, Eleanor Clark, was Bishop's roommate in college. The program took place in March 2012 before a live audience at Harvard. We join the conversation in progress as Lloyd Schwartz asks Rosanna Warren to talk about how her mother met Elizabeth Bishop when they were students at Vassar. Eleanor Clark, uh, Rosanna's mother, and Bishop were classmates, even started a magazine together because these two brilliant young women couldn't get published in the official Vassar magazine, so they started their own magazine called Conspirito <laughs> and were soon absorbed by the Vassar, official Vassar <laughs> magazine. But I wish you would tell this story. I know Bishop through my mother, and they, they were friends from freshman year at Vassar on, and off and on for many years. And they were, as Lloyd said, liter literary young ladies there at Vassar, and both of them miserable. And uh, in the winter, they decided to run away from Vassar, and the, it was beginning to snow, and dusk was falling, and they went out on the highway and started hitchhiking. <laughs> and they got a ride. Somebody drove them 20 miles down the highway <laughs> south of Poughkeepsie and then let them off. Now, this, by this time, it was snowing hard and getting dark. And they waited and waited and waited on the highway, <laughs> shivering in their coats. And nobody came or nobody stopped. And nobody came and nobody stopped. And they must have been getting a little alarmed. And then they saw a pair of headlights coming slowly through what was now quite heavy snow, and the headlights stopped, and it was a police car. And they were arrested for vagrancy and oh. prostitution. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that is not the end of the story, because they were taken to a rural New York State police station where no doubt the very bored cops who didn't have anyone else to arrest or harass that night had a lot of fun, I imagine, 
booking these two young ladies for soliciting on a public highway and other, other <laughs> missed crimes. And uh, they were desperately trying to prove that they weren't prostitutes, that they were <laughs> college girls. And the policemen were saying, yeah, right. <laughs> and this went on for a very long and, and troubling time for them. Uh, they weren't allowed even to make a phone call. And finally, after what seemed to them, I think, like hours, Bishop, as she was called, rummaging through her pea jacket pockets, dredged up out of one pocket the Greek notes from her uh, freshman Greek class at Vassar, <laughs> and from the other pocket, a copy of a true romance comic book. And the combination of the Greek notes and the true romance finally persuaded the police that these probably weren't hookers. But, and only then was, were they allowed to make a phone call, and Bishop being an orphan didn't have anyone to call. But my mother called her mother, who was an idiosyncratic divorced lady. That itself was unusual for that generation. I always call them threadbare New England gentility, quite threadbare, my grandmother, uh, who was in Manhattan at the time. And, but this time it was very late at night, probably around one in the morning, had come back from a rather fancy party to which she'd been invited, no doubt, by better-heeled relatives. And she was still wearing her silver evening gown and gets a call from a police station up in upstate New York that her daughter's in jail and needs to be bailed out along with another young lady. And my grandmother, bless her heart, without taking off her silver evening gown, put on her boots and her coat, went downstairs and cranked up the Model T and uh, putted up through the storm, arriving at the, this little police station at dawn. And the policemen were thoroughly amazed to have the door fly open and out of the blizzard, a lady in a silver evening gown. <laughs> As if the evening had not already been exciting enough. <laughs> and she paid the bail and scooped up the girls and drove them back to Vassar and got them back in their dorm before eight in the morning and they were never, they were never caught. <laughs> Just, <laughs> Just. Doesn't that sound like a scene from Bringing Up exactly, Baby? Exactly, that's what I was thinking. Catherine Hepburn uh, showing up at the police station in her uh, evening gown. Fantastic. Anyway, uh, that was, that, my, my knowledge of this is all mediated through that literary friendship uh, between her and my mother and their common loathing for Mary McCarthy, who was also a classmate. You can say it now. <laughs> the first time I really met Bishop, which was much later after the, the time that she, she had appeared at Lowell's office hours. By that time, I had gotten to know Lowell very well and had worked with him and uh, had become a friend. So uh, when he decided to stay in England in 1970 and, uh, and told the Harvard English Department they should hire Bishop to replace him, and she had been in Brazil, and so she came uh, uh, from Brazil to teach. She did not know almost anybody in Cambridge, maybe a couple of people. And uh, he, had, he wrote to me that I should introduce myself to her. And so I had the best possible introduction to her because it was through uh, his good offices. But this was not very long. A few years, I'm not actually sure when the group came up, but Mary McCarthy had published a book which had become very famous uh, called The Group about the group of women at Vassar that uh, Rosanna's mother was, was one of. One of them was a lesbian, uh, Lakey. 
and people took Lakey to be a portrait of Bishop. And Bishop was extremely aware of the fact that that's how uh, people um, thought that's what the book was about and that it was about her and she was very angry. And that first time I met her, she talked about uh, being furious at McCarthy, saying, I made that woman a million dollars. And she was feeling not rich. Both she and, I mean, I never had that conversation mm -hmm. with her, but I was certainly present to hear her deny that yes. that character was based on her at all. And I know, and I've read Mary McCarthy deny that it was based on Elizabeth Bishop. The one detail well. about that character that convinces me that, I mean, it's obviously a composite of, of some sort. Mm -hmm. I mean, the character even has a woman partner who is a, a Latin American aristocrat. Yeah. Uh, but the one detail that really resonated for me was that the character of Lakey is described as having an uncanny knack for giving the right presence. <laughs> and Bishop really had that capacity. I don't know, the, the present I love hearing about the most is something that she gave Frank, that I think was a birthday present. Uh, um, yeah, she gave me, one, I mean, my, the punctuation, especially in my early <laughs> books, is very heavy. And she would kid me about it and, and uh, argue with me about it. And um, at, on the beach at North Haven, she found all these stones. And she made up this thing that looked like this uh, that was whitewashed white, very, but very startlingly pure white. And on it, she glued these stones that she had found that looked like marks of punctuation. <laughs> uh, so there was a stone that looked like a question mark, and there was a stone that could be a comma and then a dash. I used the and, and she called it at the bottom Paleolithic punctuation. <laughs> and, um, it's a beautiful, it's really a beautiful mm. object. Um, but, but just to go back for a second to Mary McCarthy, she did feel, I mean, privately that, that Lakey at some level was her. I mean, one sign of this was the fact that she lived in Brazil with Lada de Macedo Suarez for 15 years. And at one point, uh, when Bishop and Lada were visiting uh, America, she brought Lada to some occasion where the group got together. And she always said that she regretted bitterly ever having done that because that is a, or at least there's a version of that in the group mm -hmm. where Lakey brings her lover, lover. to, uh, who's not an American. Right. So, it, it, I mean, there were, it, it was not irrational for Bishop to feel that, that the character in the group was at some level about her and she felt very angry and very used. Did did Candace Bergen sweeten the pain at all? Huh. <laughs> I, I don't know. Oh. I, I, no, I don't know. Candace um, Bergen played Lakey. Played Lakey. Played Lakey in the movie version yeah. of, of, of the group. I think um, the movie that would have most tickled her if she had been alive to see it is this 
you know, fairly recent soap opera called In Her Shoes with Cameron Diaz and, um, and Shirley MacLaine. And there's a scene in that movie in which Cameron Diaz, who's dyslexic, is, is serving, a, 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 is a volunteer in a hospital, and there's an English professor who was probably dying in the, in the hospital, and he has a copy of the bishop, you know, collected poems on his bed table, the pink <laughs> book with the bishop watercolor on the cover, and he asks Cameron Diaz to read a poem, and she reads one art. Mm-hmm. And in fact, or at least, I mean, this is Hollywood. So she reads almost all of one art, but they cut out a stanza. (laughs) You know, a three-line stanza that really shortens the amount of poetry. Did she read it nicely? She she reads it well. She's her character can't read aloud well, but but she does. And then they have a discussion about it. I mean, I, I think Maybe. Bishop would have been absolutely floored that a, that a poem of hers was being discussed in a Hollywood movie. And the the English professor asks Cameron Diaz what she thinks the poem is about. And she says, oh, I, I think it's about friendship, <laughs> which it isn't. <laughs> and, uh, and the English professor says, oh, you're absolutely right. <laughs> but it's a kind of amazing to have that, you know, to have a bishop. I mean, that's sort of where she is in the national consciousness mm-hmm. now. Um, Was she much of a moviegoer? Yeah, she loved movies. Mm-hmm. She did. Uh, she loved movies. She loved she, music. She loved music. She loved Ella Fitzgerald. And in fact, we went to hear Ella Fitzgerald at, at the Boston Pops, mm. I think a couple of times. Well, the one, uh, at one point, Fitzgerald had been in the hospital, and she had not sung in public for like six months. And there was a lot of worry that, in fact, she, or she was going to lose her sight. She did. It, Ultimately, mm-hmm. she did, but, but in, in the short run, she, she didn't. She had very thick glasses after that. But anyway, but then she, uh, she gave a, um, a concert at Symphony Hall to really to thank, it was a benefit for the hospital. And we went. And I remember, I mean, at the, at the time, uh, I thought Fitzgerald sounded great. And I, I was a little bit amazed that uh, I did not hear any vocal problems uh, because she was not young and she had not recorded or sung in public for a while. And Bishop had better ears than I did. She said, um, well, she wasn't quite as good as she had been. (laughs) And I have subsequently heard lots of recordings uh, made around that time. And it Fitzgerald after about 50, 50, no, 66, 67, uh, had real vocal problems. And she was right. It was inconceivable, in fact, that that, that day Fitzgerald had, had sung the way she had sung, say, even five years earlier. But I couldn't hear it in Bishop could. The other musical event that I, that I think probably sticks out most or you know in, in our minds right. because it was another concert that we went to with Elizabeth Bishop was uh, was the only concert Maria Callas ever gave in Boston mm-hmm. 
and we got, I had a friend who worked for the box office at Symphony Hall and we had great seats right. and, and, and we went together. And to it's the only time Callis sang on this last tour, she was singing with, with uh, De Stefano. it was the only time she sang alone. Alone. And she was so much better, better than that De Stefano. <laughs> was, uh, and Bishop adored it and, and thought it was great. I want to ask Megan about Bishop as a teacher, yes, but, yeah. but also Bishop as part of this community of, of poets. And Gail was the founder of the Blacksmith House Poetry Series, and Bishop actually went, came to readings. Yes, she came to readings. But the interesting thing about starting a reading series in Harvard Square, I had no affiliation with Harvard at all. So um, having Bishop and Lowell here and be so open to the poetry community, I started to refer to Harvard as my community college, which always got an appreciative laugh. And I thought, I have the best of both worlds, you know? <laughs> I'm not part of it, but I can partake of what of Bishop and Lowell. But she did come, and I was just thinking this morning about one of the things that that was, had nothing to do with Harvard, that was characteristic of her and of all of us at that time. In, in the mid-70s, there was a young, gay, genius poet who came here from Rhode Island named Peter Kaplan. And he um, very assertively befriended everyone. He came to the blacksmith house all the time. He was writing, I think one of you published a poem of his in your... The Sistina, Great Sistina. Yes, a Great Sistina. Sistina. Um, he was 17 when he came. Yeah. And Bishop knew him, I knew him. He was overwhelming, sort of probably bipolar, very manic, hyper, irresistible young kid and absolutely in love with poetry. And he moved to the Cape for a while and then he tried to commit suicide and everybody was very concerned about him and then he disappeared. And his body was found in Newport Bay. And there was a, an anthology that Keith Waldrop and Providence published, and if anyone can help me with this, I'd appreciate it, of poems for Peter. And I don't know if it was Lloyd or somebody told me that Elizabeth loved my poem. I don't have that poem or the anthology. Mm -hmm. I don't have a copy of it. So, do you have a, do you have that? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, I remember a line from it, which is more than I remember from my other poems. But um, in, in the next to last letter from Elizabeth in in the Library of America collection is a is I just felt she was so kind to him was a letter to Peter's father, who had just lost his 18-year-old son. And she talks about, um, he, he didn't have any money, he was on his own, how he brought her flowers, how touched she was by him. And uh, reading that letter again recently just reminded me of what it was like to be here in this town you know, with multi-generational poetry relationships and the sort of sense, you know, we were thrilled by it. And of course, in retrospect, we also took it for granted. 
you know, because it was, suddenly it was the way things were, the way the 60s and 70s were the way things were, you know, the world was open. And I was thinking about something when Frank was talking before about Elizabeth really masquerading as a matron from Scarsdale. Who was, was it Ashbury who talked of hers? Um, Life-long impersonation of, a, of, of, an ordinary, of an ordinary woman. Well, I was going to say back to the suits that um, <laughs> <laughs> I was um, looking up her recollection of Marianne Moore, and at the beginning she's talking about her first meeting with Marianne Moore, and she says, I was absolutely terrified, so I put on my new spring suit <laughs> and went down to New York yeah. to meet her, and I think aside from kind of wanting to establish uh, a certain apparent conventionality, there was also a way that putting on the new spring suit gave her courage to go out to do things that she was yes. frightened about. And um, I know, or at least I believe, she was not very happy to be teaching um, and perhaps was mm. shy or did it out of, it was a way to earn money. And She um, loved her students. Yes. She but, didn't love teaching. Uh, right. And <laughs> <laughs> and um, so to be in the class, which was um, an, an extraordinary honor that I've come to appreciate more and more with every <laughs> passing year, was to be with someone who was not really very comfortable being there. But it was still a, a wonderful thing to witness that. It was as if we were all kind of helping her through this semester <laughs> that we knew she had to do. Um, and she began, interestingly, by saying that she did not believe that the writing of poetry could be taught. Mm -hmm. And I've said this to friends who teach in the MFA programs that we now all teach in, which were not so many of them at the time, if any, hardly. And they say, oh, you know, how could somebody say that? How, you know, <laughs> how rude to the students, you know? Um, but I took it in entirely different way that she, here she had lived a life of great, you know, effort to become a poet. How could she communicate that to us? And she certainly knew that to be a poet meant to have all the things within her that, that she alone had. How could she give that to us, much as she might wish to? So the idea was that we'd just do what we could, you know, <laughs> through the semester. And she gave us assignments, like to write a ballad. We wrote in forms. And um, I remember the first day, maybe to fill the time, as I'm a teacher myself, you know, you have to fill the time when nobody has yet <laughs> written any poems. Um, she gave us a photocopy of the first page of the second chapter of The Great Gatsby, um, which begins, this is a valley of ashes, and a lovely poetic description. Um, and she said, now take this prose and turn this into a poem with line breaks. And that was our mm. exercise mm. for the mm. day. Mm. So we, we labored through this semester. and. And she, I think this was the time it comes up now and then about the dental work that was going on. So she may also have been in a, a great deal of pain. But at the end of the semester, she invited us to her apartment. I think it was, she'd newly moved into the apartment on Lewis, Lewis, Wharf. Lewis Wharf. Yeah. Um, and this was 1976. And I think it was meant to be a, a party or a <laughs> reading. I think she told us she it's had... It was kind of last class of It was the, the last semester. class. Yeah. And maybe that was something she regularly did. But... We all, you know, took the subway over to the North End and got out in this very cold. This was the, you know, by then December, and 
went into this building and emerged into this space, which at the time for us was absolutely new. And this is part of what an adventuresome person she was. She was living in a kind of a loft space with exposed brick. We had never seen exposed <laughs> brick before. So it's very, you know, and... and uh, in what it, was considered a very seedy part of it town. It was. It was just kind of an experiment. What yeah. might we do with these old buildings, you know? And there she was so much happier and, again, kind of aglow in the way that she had been in Robert Lowell's um, mm. course and uh, just greeting us all. I haven't, my sister happened to have just come back from a semester in Japan and she said, oh, your sister can come too. And, you know, sister wasn't a poet, but there she was. <laughs> and, uh, you know, decorated, I think, with Brazilian folk art mm. and other kinds of things framed elaborately. And, and um, it was just an entirely different experience of who she was. And I believe, we've been trying to work this out, she had a, a young man um, read his poems. She was very proud of this young man, dark hair and a big beard, flowing <laughs> locks. Young man read his, his poems to us. And this seemed like the real world. This was poetry. And, Could have been, and but I it, wouldn't have read more than one poem. <laughs> no, I think it was one poem. Just one poem. Who's on first? Um, <laughs> she didn't like that poem. <laughs> <laughs> so Lloyd was telling me, well, I think she'd begun to like me by then, or like my no, poems. Well, you think, no, no, she never liked my poems. But, <laughs> but, uh, but we had become friends um, by then, and I had just finished my, my dissertation on her, in, which she had read when she was in the hospital, I think after an asthma attack. Mm -hmm. and, I mean, my, my dissertation was on her first book. And she gave me her reading copy mm. of North mm. and South oh. with a little inscription that says, from north to south, from south to north, and back again, and back again with ditto marks mm. to Lloyd Schwartz mm. with mm. thanks, Elizabeth. Mm. And I, it's you know, probably the thing in my house that I treasure most. Certainly a great present from her. Something that's gone through a number of these stories is, is Bishop's uh, disengagement from uh, many of the prevailing attitudes in academia. And um, Lloyd's book was, the, uh, I think, the first serious collection of of materials on her work. Um, there had been a very small Twain series and Stevenson's, Stevenson's book. book, but there really had been very little scholarly work on her. She was very aware of this. Yeah, and, and, she, and she was very grateful for this because uh, she knew the great value of, um, of the academic world becoming aware of the nature of her work of her writing. But she was also very aware that it, there was not in anything like uh, an adequate uh, appreciation of what she had done. The little history of that volume and in relation to her life is, is very revealing because it was a book that started to come together in 1976 and she was extremely helpful and cooperative in, in helping me put it together. And she was also aware that no publisher was interested in publishing it. That there was a, there was a 
series at Cornell of you know volumes of essays about contemporary poets, and Cornell uh, turned down this volume for a very bad reason, which I'm I'd be happy to tell anyone in private, but not, <laughs> not here. But after she died, maybe a year after she died, I got a note, a postcard from Donald Hall, who said, I'm starting a new series at the University of, Mass uh, University of Michigan Press called Under Discussion. I hear you have a volume about Elizabeth Bishop circulating. I would like to publish it as the first volume in my series without having seen it. So by 1982, 1981-82, her reputation had so soared that someone was actually desperate to publish a volume, even if it, you know, even if it wasn't any good, he was willing to publish it. And uh, there was a, such a huge change in the perception of uh, the general literary perception of, of, of Bishop. You know, I think people like to think of Bishop as sort of um, rather calmly, placidly above such things, <laughs> above caring. And it was not true. She was a human being. And she was aware of, of how issues like reputation uh, affect one's life. And she wanted readers like everybody else. And when she came back from uh, Brazil, she came back into a world in which Lowell's reputation was enormous. And I think enormous for good reasons, but the fact is it was very large and hers was not even remotely comparable. I mean, she, she had lived in Brazil for a very long time. She had won prizes, but that did not really give her a passionate readership. And uh, one day, uh, visiting my apartment, she picked a book off the shelf, which was a collection of papers edited by Ian Hamilton. Of, I think they were papers that had originally been in the English magazine, The Listener. And there was an essay on Berryman and on Jurel and on Sylvia Plath. And she looked through it and there was no essay on her. And she put it back on the shelf and she said, it's like being buried alive. You know, the, these things can be very cruel. Uh, and it was very wrong, but it was the world she, uh, she lived in and uh, could not, you know, she could not herself alone change. Uh, critical climates, you know, I've, I've often said academia is as ruled by fashion as Vogue magazine. And uh, within a couple of years of her life, the fashion changed, thank God, in her, in her favor. But it was not in her favor during her lifetime, for the, until the very end, until the last couple of years. Just in, again, in terms of, of, of one's memories of her, and one of the most striking memories I have is I, the more I read her and the more I, I understood her work, the more I was amazed by it. I had grown up on the contemporary criticism, which very much emphasized Bishop as a great describer as a um, rather mi as a rather minor poet who uh, was a very brilliant kind of follower of Marianne Moore. And when I actually read the poems, this was just not true. This was not the case. She was much more than someone 
who was a wonderful describer. Well, this poem, the, the most striking anecdote I have in relation to this is about the end of her poem called At the Fish Houses. I mean, she has a number of, of poems that I think you really have to be called visionary. Poems of extraordinary reach and ambition, and they were not the poems that were emphasized by contemporary criticism. I mean, Jarrell has quite a, a, a nice essay on her, but it's, it's really on Bishop as a kind of Vermeer-like, mm. miniaturist of beautiful surfaces. And it's not satisfying. It's not Jarrell at his best at all. Anyway, I, let me read you the very end of her poem at the Fish Houses, which I think is, I think, one of the great passages in 20th century poetry. And then talk about when I, when I discussed it with her. She's describing the sea, having, visiting these fish houses that, that uh, were slowly becoming more and more phased out in, uh, in Nova Scotia. And then there's this extraordinary passage about, about the sea, which uh, this is not characteristic of the majority of the poem. She says, I have seen it over and over. The same sea, the same slightly indifferently swinging above the stones, icily free above the stones, above the stones, and then the world. If you should dip your hand in, your wrist would ache immediately, your bones would begin to ache, and your hand would burn as if the water were a transmutation of fire that feeds on stones and burns with a dark gray flame. If you tasted it, it would first taste bitter, then briny then surely burn your tongue. It is like what we imagine knowledge to be. Dark, salt, clear, moving, utterly free, drawn from the cold, hard mouth of the world, derived from the rocky breasts forever, flowing and drawn, and since our knowledge is historical, flowing and flown. And I... I said to her, this seemed to me an astonishing passage. And um, she talked about how excited she'd been when she'd written it. First thing she did was show it to her analyst, Annie Bauman. <laughs> and she said, when she wrote it, and she raised her arms like this, she said, I felt 10 feet tall. She said, in some ways, I hardly knew what I was saying, but I knew that the words were right. And I think that attitude toward her work is very characteristic of Bishop. That is, at a certain level, she had an absolute certainty about what was right. She could be very modest in many ways and rather differential, and yet she had this real toughness as an artist and a conviction that when she believed something was right, that's the way it had to be, and she wasn't going to follow anybody's advice. And, you know, it's very, in a way, it's heartening to realize that she knew how extraordinary that was. Though, as I said, at the time, I do not believe there was any criticism that acknowledged in print how completely remarkable that is. When I was reading her memoir of Marianne Moore, she writes about how when she first read Moore's poetry, she was at Vassar, and, and I don't believe Moore's, Moore's reputation was that high not, at the time? Not, but, not enormous. But Elizabeth, yeah, but. she said, I, I read it and I, 
I, she said, I didn't know that poetry could be like that. Yeah. And that was the feeling that I had in the classroom, Robert Lowell's class, and she's reading Crusoe in mm. England. Mm. And the atmosphere for poetry was so different from that. There was the confessional and there was, right. I don't know. Yeah. But, but this kind of persona poem that was so much more than that, nobody was doing that. Yes. And I, you know, I didn't really know. I, can't say I knew how to appreciate it, except it was stunning. Yeah. And clearly Lowell appreciated it. Yeah, yeah. no, he did. I think he, Lowell always said she was his favorite poet, but he could not carry along his own audience to get to see that. I think there's a, there's a really wonderful story about her conviction about her own work that goes back even earlier than that, because this was some, and, I, and it, it's this kind of famous story about her great, really great earlier poem than at the fish houses called Roosters. Mm -hmm. Very ambitious, very daring because it's written in rhyming tercet, so three lines with the rhyme, rhyming, three rhyming lines. And at that point, very early in her career, she showed everything to Marion Moore. And Marion Moore and Marion Moore's mother would re <laughs> would read her read Bishop's poems and get and this is you know I say this is a kind of well known story in Bishop's biography and Marion Moore was very disturbed by the rhymes she didn't even like the title she thought the title Roosters was vulgar. <laughs> And uh, she wanted Bishop to change the title to something that she thought was more classical, <laughs> called The Cock. <laughs> <laughs> the Cock Crows. It's about, partly about St. Peter and, you know, that. Bishop was worldly enough to know that this was not possible. <laughs> but she... It was the first time that she refused to, essentially, to listen to Marion Moore. And she published that poem the way she wrote it. And it caused a real breach in her friendship with Marion Moore that lasted a number of years. I mean, they kind of made it up, but they were never as close again. And Marion Moore, as the mentor, you know, regarded this as a kind of betrayal of her, you know, of her advice. And I'm sure Elizabeth Bishop knew that she was doing something that was risking really offending the, the one person who had, you know, the one person in high places who had really supported her. But damn it, she was not going to, she was not going to change a word, let alone the title. <laughs> if you look at the the version that Moore produced, the, she sent back to Bishop, that's reproduced in various books. You know, it, it wrecked the poem. I mean, it, it would have ruined. it would have ruined the poem if if Bishop had accepted it. I think it's in the Calstone book. Isn't it's it? in the Calstone yeah. book. I don't know if it's reproduced elsewhere, but it's in the David Calstone book. And Bishop is not Marion Moore. I mean, she's no. she's not a, a, a little Marion Moore, no. or even a derivative. No. I mean, in any fundamental sense, yeah. but, Moore but, has her own magnificences, but they're not, I find them nothing to do with what no. Bishop essentially is. But it took it took American criticism such a long time to see that. 
And that, that's really a, a kind of tragedy. I think that one of the very best things ever written about Bishop early on in her career was Robert Lowell's review of her mm. first book. Mm. And it still holds up. Mm. It's still mm. full of really profoundly insightful mm. about what Bishop is actually doing in her poems. And it's not just about description. Yeah. Although she said many times that when you, when one praised her poems, she would deflect this praise mm. by saying, uh, it's just description. Right. You see, that's in a way, that's the side of Bishop that that believed in the genteel image of, you know, so self-deprecating, so um, not wanting to be the vision, to think the world thinks you think you are a visionary poet, so you do this hmm. exaggeratedly modest gesture. It's just description. I, I think it has something to do, too, with her love of George Herbert and with questions of tonality. I mean, Herbert is a very quiet poet, a right. modest poet, if you think of right. John Donne, for instance, right. and yet a poet of immense smoldering power and surprising originality with, within the conventions and limitations he's set for himself and within a, a tone of voice, which is apparently conversational and n not on the surface breaking conventions, although he's reinventing them at every line in some way. And I think that Bishop was caught between various aesthetics that didn't, couldn't account for her. On the one hand, a sort of high filigree, syllable counting, descriptive Marion Moore poetics. On the other hand, increasingly, as the, as the 70s gained, gained traction, confessional melodrama uh, and, and, um, and then beat inventions. And none of those decibel levels could account for the deep powerful quietness and modes of discovery that Bishop yeah. had. And I took, I think it's instructive in any era to think about the decibels in, mm. in poetry. Think about what is noise and think about what is signifying sound. And it's very beautiful, I think, and ennobling and heartening to hear that she can be heard now than have instructed several generations of younger poets about what hearing might be and what speaking might be in, 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 in verse. I agree yeah. completely. Yeah. There's a very interesting essay written after she died, but that makes a point about Bishop's poems asking questions mm -hmm. and that they're, her poems are full of questions and not so much answers, mm -hmm. but boy, they're good questions. <laughs> um, we uh, are running a little out of time, and I would like to, to introduce someone in the audience who, and I don't know whether you had very much to do directly with Bishop, but I know that Bishop had something directly to do with, with you, Susan Deveni Weiner, wonderful conductor and a great singer who introduced, who gave the first performance of Elliot Carter's fascinating and complicated setting of Elizabeth Bishop poems called A Mirror on Which to Dwell. And 
I think Bishop heard the very the second performance mm -hmm. because I was with her or I wasn't with her I was with her at the performance but this was my function this was at a an MLA conference and then there was a big tribute to Bishop in 1976 just as her last book had been was being published Geography 3 and there were many papers being given about Bishop none of which Bishop wanted to hear <laughs> so there was a panel with very distinguished American senior American critics talking about Bishop while at the Americana Hotel while Bishop was across the street at the stage deli having corned beef hash with two of her closest friends who were the duo piano team of Golden Fizdale. Yeah. And it was my function to race across the street <laughs> when the talks were over to retrieve Bishop and Arthur Gold and Robert Fizdale and bring her back to the Americana Hotel to hear Susan Deveni Weiner and um, Speculum Musicae, this really amazing group of musicians who, who, who concentrated in contemporary work to hear what for most of us was the first performance, though I think was actually the second performance. Elliot Carter's way of setting her each day with so much <laughs> all over the place was was so extravagant and and passionately across tessitoras and a voice that was very exuberant. And she was sitting in my line of vision as I was performing <laughs> and I saw her go like this, <laughs> bend back in herself. Mm -hmm. And she was very shy afterwards with us and with me. But then when I heard her read her own poetry and heard that she read not in the Dylan Thomas kind of extravagant, <laughs> but in a very measured way so that the metaphorical imagery could live without any performance intruding between you and the images. I always would love to have known what she really thought because my sense was that it was a complete anathema. <laughs> <laughs> she, she said that she just didn't understand it, that yeah. she didn't think Carter had really gotten what the poems were doing. On the other hand, she admired Carter a lot and there had been earlier settings of her poems, a couple of poems, a couple of settings by Ned Roram, which were much more conventional and which she hated. And so I think she was both thrilled that Carter had chosen her poems to write about. And this was, these were his first settings of poetry in many, many years. So it was a kind of, it was a great musical event 
but she just didn't hear what he was hearing uh, in her poems. I think she might have changed her mind if she, if the recording had come out and if she had, she were listening to it more and heard more of what was happening, but, but she was baffled. But she didn't, I don't, she didn't say to me that she hated it. No. She just <laughs> no, was, no, no, no. no. <laughs> no she definitely did not attack it. She, she just felt she didn't quite understand she it. She didn't right. get it. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming. That concludes this discussion of Elizabeth Bishop. The program took place at the Barker Center, Harvard University, on March 27, 2012. The recording of this program is used by permission of the Woodbury Poetry Room and Harvard College Library. Elizabeth Bishop published only 101 poems during her lifetime. Her work is included in many anthologies, and The Complete Poems, 1927 to 1979, was published in 1983. You can read and listen to some of Bishop's poems at poetryfoundation.org, where she is also the subject of several articles. The Poetry Foundation site also has information on Frank Bedart, Gail Mazur, and Rosanna Warren. Keep up with the world of poetry at the Poetry Foundation website, where you'll find many articles by and about poets, an online archive of more than 10,000 poems, the Poetry Learning Lab, the Harriet blog about poetry, the complete back issues of Poetry Magazine, and other audio programs to download. I'm Ed Herman. Thanks for listening to Poetry Lectures from poetryfoundation.org.